Thank you so much, Kelly. Great words, be still and know. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. That's enough, that's enough. Don't get all wrapped up in the crazy, the crazy of the world, the crazy of life, the crazy of the news. Be still sometimes and know he is God. Take your Bible with me and turn to the book of Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five, when I was a young person, I did not grow up in a Christian home. There's a great advantage for those of our young people and those of you in the audience this morning who grew up in a Christian home. I did not have that advantage. I did not have that privilege. Having said that, however, I would say that I see in the sovereign hand of God everything working perfect according to his will. In other words, I don't regret on any level the upbringing that I had. I just don't do that. By the way, it'd be silly to spend your time regretting your upbringing because you can't do anything about it now. Uh, You can't fix yesterday, but make today as good as you can. That's a really good principle for life. But I have no regrets about my upbringing, but I do remember some funny things that happened when I first came in contact with Bible-believing Christians. My mother, after my father's death, had enrolled me in a Christian school, the Fourth Baptist School, in Minneapolis, I knew absolutely nothing about the Bible, uh, nothing. Well, not absolutely. I had a couple facts in my brain about the Bible, things about Noah's Ark and stuff, but, but, uh, but I really knew nothing about the Bible. I knew nothing about Christianity, and I certainly didn't know what in the world is a Baptist. What in the world is that? I, I looked it up on, uh, in a dictionary, and uh, it didn't help me one iota. By the way, I'm sometimes still wondering, just a little bit, look at some of you. But one of the great things about that was learning everything brand new. And because I am a first-generation Christian, I listened with intensity. Now, I didn't always get everything right, but I listened with intensity to the things that the preachers and the teachers had to say. I remember going to that Christian school the very first week and and being in class, and I remember a, a teacher said, we're going to pray. They had a revival. They'd have uh, school revival meetings. They said, uh, the first week of school, they said, we're going to pray, and they called on students to pray, and they were asked to pray that all of the, the ones that weren't saved would get saved. And do you know what I thought in my mind? Saved from what? I really did. I thought, is the building going to collapse? I had no idea. I, I, uh, there was no connection to what that even meant. Of course, I I did come to understand how important is the matter of salvation. I remember one time a teacher I had in that school, she asked me to uh, lead in devotions. Can you imagine, a kid that knew nothing. We read a passage of scripture and we were to read in, in devotions. She would ask me then in front of the whole class to explain that passage. And we read, I remember one time where Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, there shall be earthquakes in diverse places. Well, I looked at the word diverse and took it to mean diver, like a skin diver, a possessive of a skin diver. That's how I took it. And, and we read it, and I thought my mind was racing because I knew I had to explain it to the class. And when it was all over with uh, the reading part, she said, now, Mr. Motti, explain that to the class. And I remember explaining to them there are earthquakes in divers places because God is against skin diving. And... <laughs> Earthquakes come because of that, and that's why California has so many earthquakes. I explain it just that way to the class. And that, that gracious, and some of you think, what's wrong with that? No, that gracious, that grace, gracious teacher, uh, she just smiled and nodded and allowed me to grow as a Christian. But when I came to the point of salvation, 
understanding that I needed to come to trust Christ as my Savior. That was a really difficult thing because of one idea that was in my head. It cannot be so easy as just believing. That was the idea in my head. My dad, if he was anything, he was a workaholic, and he taught us all about work. And he taught you should never get anything for free, and everything should be worked for. And with that background in the home, my dad was a World War II veteran of the United States Navy. With that background in the home, I thought you have to work for everything. And surely as I'm listening to these pastors talk about salvation as a free gift of God, I thought surely there's more to it than that. Ladies and gentlemen, the amazing thing about God's grace is this. It is not about you. It is all about God. It is not about you, it is all about God. Now, in the book of Romans, we're gonna look briefly at chapter five this morning, but in the book of Romans, as a little bit of background, chapters one through three, Paul spends those chapters discussing the sinfulness of mankind. And that's everybody. From the guy like me who didn't know anything about the Bible uh, to the Jew of the Old Testament time who was very knowledgeable of the Bible, uh, Paul demonstrates that all are sinners. It is not our background, it is our nature. It is not our education or lack thereof. When we say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, it is our very nature, it is who we are. In chapter three, he draws some conclusions. Because we're all sinners, the religious sinner, the law-keeping sinner, the moral sinner, the ethical sinner, because we are all sinners, we cannot make it to heaven on our own. Obedience to the law cannot save. That's Romans 3 and verse number 20. He also says this, that righteousness, what I need, because I'm a sinner, I'm not righteous. What I need, righteousness, can only come one way, and that is by faith in Christ. That's in chapter 3, verses 20 uh, through 31. Now, if you will look at chapter, don't look there, but I'll talk about it. Chapter 4, after Paul establishes the necessity of faith and not works, you can't make it on your own. After he establishes that necessity, he draws an illustration from the Bible. The Old Testament, oh, wait a minute, Pastor Bonnie, the Old Testament, they obeyed all those rules to get them to heaven. No. In chapter 4, God draws an illustration, Paul does, and he talks about Abraham. And Abraham lived prior to the Mosaic law, and yet Paul argues that Scripture teaches that Abraham believed God and that his belief or his faith was counted for righteousness. That's, that's the, the, the bottom line. How does a person become righteous? Not by keeping laws. How does a person please God? Not by keeping rules. Well, what is the way to get to that past money? If I do my best to keep the Ten Commandments, I have a chance at heaven. You don't have a Chinaman's chance. I, that was... <laughs> I am almost 57 years old. Leave my colorful expressions alone. Abraham is an illustration of justification by faith. He believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. This was before the law of Moses. So when we get to Romans chapter 5, Paul has made an argument that you're not going to be righteous by keeping the rules. You're not going to get to heaven. You're not going to have a relationship with God by just keeping the rules. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, based upon the first four chapters... Therefore, being justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What in the world is justified mean, okay? We talked about a moment ago the need for righteousness. I'm not righteous, okay? By the way, you're not righteous. Pastor Monty, I am too. I'm very righteous. You're self-righteous, which won't hold any credit in heaven. None of us is righteous. But I need righteousness. God is righteous. God is holy. A moment ago, we sang the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. My greatest need is to be righteous. Well, Pastor Marty, then I better get cracking and pull myself up by the bootstraps and straighten myself out so I can be right with God. No, no, no. You'll never do it. You'll never do it. The Jews of the Old Testament era, they never, over 600 laws they were to obey. They couldn't do it. The whole point of the law was to demonstrate that we're all failures. But Paul says we're justified by faith. Now, what does justified mean? Listen carefully. Justified is an accounting term. It literally means to be declared righteous. Now, what is my need? My need is to be righteous. How do I get that? By keeping rules? Nope, nope. Chapters 1 through 4, Paul said that's not the way. How do I get that? I get that by faith, and listen carefully, I am justified, or I am declared to be righteous. Well, wait, wait a minute, Pastor Monty. You're a sinner. How can God declare a sinner to be righteous? Does he just sweep your sins under the rug? Oh, no, 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 no. God, in addition to being holy, is a just God. He doesn't sweep our sins under the rug, but we'll get to what he's done. But the whole idea is I am justified, I am declared righteous before God. By the way, righteous as if I had never sinned, and righteous as enrobed in the righteousness of Jesus. Justification, and we don't have time to get into the whole doctrine. Justification teaches this, that the moment I become a Christian, I am positionally as righteous as Christ. Not only am I forgiven, How many like that you're forgiven? Amen. Good, good. We all need that. I'm not only forgiven. Well, Pastor Monia, in forgiveness, my, my slate is wiped clean. Yes. But in justification, the very righteousness of Christ is added to my account. But here's the issue. Justification, salvation, if you will, is our greatest need. Our greatest need. Oh, Pastor Monty, what I really need is more money. No, you need to be saved. Because all the money in the world won't keep you out of hell. Pastor Monty, what I I really need is, is, is to have a better standard of living. It's not what we need. The deepest need, the genuine need, the real need is a right standing with God. All those other things are secondary to a right standing with God. And so what I need to do is figure out what Paul is saying about being saved. What exactly do I need to know? This justification where God declares me righteous, how does that even happen? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me give you a quick idea, a few ideas. Number one, you must see your need for justification. See my need. Yeah, there's a lot of people who think they're fine without God. Or there's a lot of people who think they're fine and when they meet God, that somehow God will be fine with them. But your Bible's open to Romans chapter 5. Look at verse number 6, please. Romans 5, verse 6. The Bible says this, For when we were yet without strength, 
In due time, Christ died, note the next words, for the ungodly. Why did Christ have to die for the ungodly? I will get into the why in a moment. But it is sufficient to say that in the great plan of God, it necessitated the death of Christ because of our ungodliness. Look at verse number seven. For scarcely, hardly, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Most people wouldn't even give up their life for a very good person. You wouldn't sacrifice your life for another person. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, perhaps, for a good man, some would even dare to die. So we're not going to just give up our lives willy-nilly, but maybe if someone was really good, maybe if someone was really in need, maybe it was if it were a chivalrous husband rescuing a child or rescuing his wife, we might take a risk at life. That's reasonable and that happens. But there's a contrast in verse number eight. The Bible says, but God commendeth. The word commendeth means to demonstrate. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see my need? My need of Christ is because there is a fundamental separation between me and God. I am a sinner. That was not always true in human history. But to find a time when that is not true, we need to turn in our Bibles all the way back to the book of Genesis. God created Adam and Eve. And the Bible says that Adam and Eve walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they walked with God. They walked with unbroken, in unbroken fellowship with God, whose very throne room on earth was in the Garden of Eden and they enjoyed complete and total relationship with God. But what happened? They sinned, and they were driven from the garden, and they were banished. And now, whereas before they had enjoyed, uh, enjoyed uh, welcome fellowship with God and unbroken fellowship with God, now they are banished from the garden. They would experience two things, physical death, life as they knew it would end. They were barred from partaking of the tree of life. They would also experience spiritual death. That is something perhaps they did not understand, but the moment they disobeyed God, the curse of sin came into the human genome. And they were translated from being fellowshippers with God to being sinners before God. And God cannot have sin in his presence. Adam's sin, by the way, is generational. Romans 5.12, we read it a moment ago, teaches that in Adam we are all fallen creatures. We have related from him and inherited from him a sin nature. We are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And this is our need. We say, Pastor Mario, I, I don't like all this talk about being a sinner. Please listen carefully. We're all there. No one is saying anyone is better than anybody else. We're all, well, Pastor Monty, my neighbors, they're really big sinners. I wish you couldn't, would quit comparing yourself to somebody else. In the eyes of God, we are all sinners, and sin is sin. So uh, sin separates us from God. Sin does something more, though, and this really shocks the modern view of God. Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, for if, when we were, what's the next word? Enemies. Wow. 
Okay, it's not just that I'm a sinner and separated from God, but I am actively in my sin opposed to God and he to me. Look at verse 10 again. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, that's good news. The enemy part, but then the reconciled part comes, that's good news. Much more being reconciled, we should be saved by his life. But I want to focus on my need. Not only am I separated from God, but that separation makes me the enemy of God. If you look back at verse number one, Paul said, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now you know what people read that? And they're, okay, oh yeah, if I get saved, this, this peace is gonna just flood my soul. That's not what it's talking about. I have peace with God the moment I become a Christian, I have peace with God, whereas before there was animosity. I have peace with God, whereas before there was enmity. Paul is making this grand argument that the biggest thing we need is justification to be declared righteous. And we don't get that by obeying the law. We can't get it by cleaning up our act. The only way we can get it is by personal faith in Christ, and we'll get there in a moment. And he's saying our need is that we are all sinners, but not just sinners that we are in open animosity against God. That little baby, that cute little baby. Boy, I'm gonna say something and someone's gonna get all their feelings hurt. They're gonna all get unraveled here and oh, I can't believe he says it. Please don't do that. That little baby, cute little baby, right? They're all cute. No, they're not, but they're a cute little baby. <laughs> cute little baby. You know what? That baby's a sinner. That baby, by the way, they show it real fast. They show it real fast. But have you ever thought about this? Not only is that baby a sinner, that baby is at enmity with God, born that way. I know what I just said makes some people incredibly uncomfortable. Now, that baby is made in the image of God. That baby is a soul for whom Christ died. That baby is a soul that God loves but fundamentally by our nature, we have to admit this is what the Bible teaches, that we're at enmity with God. You see, we have a real need. We have a real need. I, 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 could, I could have a fuss. Listen to this. I could have a fuss with Kelly. Now we don't, until we do. I, I could have a fuss, and, and it's, it's, it's bad, right? It's uncomfortable, it's bad. The quality of the meals goes down. It's just all these things, okay? But honestly, a, a fuss between husband and wife, that, that's not the end of the world. Do you know what it is? When you have ongoing animosity with God Almighty. And the Bible tells us that's how every person is born into this. Do you see why that's so important? As important as human relationships are, and they're very important, as important as human relationships are, they pale in comparison to where do I stand with God? There's nothing I can do to fix it. I need to see how serious is my need for salvation, for justification. But number two, number two, I need to see this as well. You must see Christ's solution to your sin problem. You must understand this, okay? Because in a moment we're gonna talk about faith. And faith always has an object. So what is the solution? Since I can't do anything to fix myself, what is the solution? Look at chapter five, verse number eight. The Bible says, but God commendeth his love. By the way, that's a beautiful thing. He loved us though we're his enemy. He loved us though we're sinners. That's a beautiful thing. 
The grace of God is magnanimous beyond anything you could understand. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, note the next words, Christ died for us. Now listen carefully. Theologically speaking, that is something called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Oh, Pastor Monty, what does all that mean? Simply stated, it is this. A moment ago I said that God does not just sweep our sins under the rug and overlook them. But God is willing to forgive and to declare us righteous based on the penalty for sin having been paid. Pastor Monty, that's a, that's a tall order in my life. I've got a, a grocery list a mile long. You'll never do it yourself. But God himself paid the penalty for your sin in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says he, speaking of Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. Do you follow what I'm saying? My righteousness cannot come of myself. God is a just God and does not just sweep away sin, but a penalty was paid. And the penalty was paid in the substitutionary and atoning death of Jesus. This is accomplished by the cross. You see, the cross was not an unplanned tragedy of history. The cross was the plan of God for the redemption of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, there was no other way. My salvation, my justification is accomplished by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. If you look at verse number six, it says Christ died for the ungodly. The word for is a preposition. It can be rather elastic, but in that case, it means in the place of the ungodly. He took my place. He took yours. In verse number eight, the Bible says God or Christ died for us. That is in our place. Are you following me? Well, Pastor Money, he took our place. What, what if I don't accept that? Then you take your own place. We'll get there. There's only one way to heaven, folks. It's not in a Baptist church. It's not by water. There's one way to heaven. It's by Jesus Christ. He said, why? Because he died for me. So verse 6 says Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 says Christ died for us. Verse 9 says that we are justified, how? By his blood. Verse number 10 says we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Is everyone following this? The only way I can have righteousness, the only way I can be saved, the only way I can have peace with God is through the death of Christ. Verse number 11, he summarizes that argument with the words, by whom, speaking of Jesus, we have now received the atonement. What is the atonement? That phraseology goes all the way back to the Old Testament. You see, God in the law of Moses prescribed a special day when the children of Israel would be gathered together, and it was the highest holy day of the Jewish calendar. It was the one time per year when the high priest would change his garments and go behind the Holy of Holies. And he would carry with him in that holiest place in the tabernacle and later the temple, he would carry with him a basin of blood. And he would sprinkle that blood. Pastor Monty, why in the world blood? It was all a prophecy. It was all a picture. 
The Bible teaches this, that the life of the flesh is in the blood and there can be no redemption and no forgiveness apart from the blood sacrifice. And my sin is so dark that it requires death to pay it. That's how dark your sin is. That's how dark my sin is. The Bible says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And if I die, I face the wrath of God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation then is not my being religious or being a good person or getting baptized or or obeying a bunch of rules. Salvation is all found in Christ. That day of atonement when the priest would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. The word atonement means a covering. In other words, the blood covered the sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. I need to see that God has made an adequate provision, and by the way, that's not just for a select few. That that provision of Christ's death is for everyone who will believe. Pastor Monty, what if I just don't buy all of this? Then I would warn you that you need to see the consequences of rejecting Christ. Please drop down to verse number nine. The Bible says, much more than being now justified by his blood, he took my place. He who knew no sin became sin for me. Much more than being now justified by his blood, note the next words, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Saved from wrath. What does that mean? It means that if I reject the provision that God made in Christ, that I will face the wrath of God. Now now let me be clear. Let me be crystal clear. The Bible teaches there is a heaven, and the Bible teaches there is a hell. And the Bible is clear that those who do not trust in Christ's provision will not go to heaven. This was very early illustrated in the book of Genesis. Cain and Abel, you remember the story. Abel offered the prescribed blood sacrifice. Oh, Pastor Ronnie, how did he know it needed to be a blood sacrifice? Because God had done so at the moment of Adam and Eve's sin. God made a sacrifice. Where does the Bible say that? He made them coats of skins. The skins were an animal. An animal had to die in that moment. They understood that the only acceptable sacrifice for sin was a blood sacrifice, and so Abel makes an acceptable blood sacrifice. But what did Cain do? Cain decided, ah, I got this. I don't have to be like Abel. It doesn't have to be blood. My, my own, the work of my hands, my, my garden, my vegetable garden, the fruit from my vegetable, that'll be good enough. I'll make a sacrifice of everything that I've worked for, that I've sacrificed for, that I've put effort into. That's what I'm going to sacrifice. And the Lord did not accept Cain's offering. Cain became angry with Abel and slew his brother. And then later the Bible says that Cain was banished from all society. Sin banishes us from God, but it goes beyond banishment. I want you to take your Bible with me quickly as we have a moment. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Jesus spoke vividly in the Gospels of the consequences of us bearing our own sin. He talked about a place where 
the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. He spoke of a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and that is clearly physical punishment. But I want you to see a summary of all of that in Revelation chapter 20, because the Bible is clear in Revelation chapter 20 that all who reject Christ's sacrifice will face God's eternal wrath. Look at verse number 10. To give you context, this is speaking of a time period following the millennial kingdom age, which is yet future. It is the final judgment when everything is wrapped up immediately prior to what we call the eternal state. In Revelation 20, verse number 10, the Bible says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, that is the Antichrist, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Oh, wow, pastor. You mean the devil's going to be tormented in the flames of the lake of fire forever? That's good, because he sure has been pestering me a long time. That's good. We'll be done with the devil. And of course, the Antichrist, he's going to be a big deal, right? And he's the embodiment of Satan anyway, and he's an example of perfect possession of Satan himself. And, and so, yeah, he, he definitely, he's got to go there too. He's got to go to the lake of fire. The false prophet, well, who in the world is that? That's the guy who encouraged everyone to follow the Antichrist. Well, man, Pastor Monty, he's bad news too. So he should probably go to hell as well. Okay, we're all agreed that these should go to the lake of fire. Now look at the next verse, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne at him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there's found no place for them. And I saw the dead. Who are the dead? He will explain. These are not animals, these are human beings. Now remember, we've got the devil right now in the lake of fire, verse number 10. Verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, those who died in shipwrecks, who were buried in the ocean. They're not going to escape the final judgment day. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell, hell is the place of temporary abode of the lost dead. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. This is degrees of punishment. Not all people are punished the same, but those who do not, do not come to Christ and believe upon him will receive punishment. And verse 14, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now pause there for a moment. Anyone not receiving Christ, anyone not coming under the covering of the blood of Jesus and believing upon his sacrifice, the devil in verse number 10 is cast into the lake of fire, and now these are cast into the lake of fire. And verse 15 says, whosoever was not written, was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. I do not say this to scare you, I say this to be honest with you. I can't read my Bible any other way except to say that those who sidestep the love of Christ in his sacrifice on the cross, those who think they're going to make it on their own, those who think they don't need God, those who think that they don't need Christ, they don't need Christianity, they don't need any of this Bible thumping, we don't need any of that, preacher, we're, we're progressive, we're intelligent, we're well beyond that in our culture, that those who reject what God's done 
will one day stand to face him at the great white throne. And I think if you've read your Bible along with me, the consequences of that are crystal clear. Hell is a holding place for God's enemies, those who have not come to know Christ. The lake of fire is their final destination. Pastor, what must I do? You must understand the only way is faith in Christ. Throughout the whole message, I've hinted at that. That is the only way. If you'll turn back to Romans, but this time turn to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, look with me at verse number 21. Romans 3, 21. The Bible says these words, now, but now the, unright- the righteousness of God without the law, apart from the law, is manifested, it's revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Believe. Faith. Do you see that? It's not your good works, it's not your church membership, it's upon all who believe. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's established our position, our need. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, that word means to satisfy, whom God has set forth to be one as a propitiation or satisfaction through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, that God's always doing the right thing, the penalty is paid, and it's paid in Christ, and that God may be the justifier of him which, note the next word, believeth in Jesus. Then Paul asks a question, where is boasting then? What happened to your pride? The only way to a relationship with God is through Christ. It's not through a church. It's not through a baptism tank. What happened to your pride? Where is boasting then? Paul answers, it is excluded. He asks the question, by what law? Of works? No. If you can work your way to heaven, you'll have a lot to brag about. We'd stand around on streets of gold, and I'd see uh, Pastor Wall. Let me think. I'd see Pastor Morris is who I'd see. <laughs> stand around on streets of gold, I'll see Pastor Morris. And, Morris, how'd you get here? We know how Morris got there. And Morris would look at me and say, wow, you're here? (laughs) If we worked our way to heaven, if we worked our way to heaven, we'd brag about how we got there. But there is no boasting, it is excluded. Nay, how is it excluded by the law of faith? Because ladies and gentlemen, anyone can believe. Therefore, Paul said this, we conclude that a man is justified, declared righteous, look at the words, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The most important thing for you to believe is that Jesus Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And it's not just a head belief, I believe the facts, It's a heart belief, listen carefully, where I am relying entirely upon him. Faith, belief, and trust always carries with it the element of of reliance. I come to the place of personal belief. Now, Now let me tell you folks, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So I struggled with 
this matter of believing on Jesus. I just wasn't sure about all of it. There, I had these mental arguments against it. But as I listened to the preaching and looked in my Bible to make sure they weren't making this stuff up, as I did that, the Holy Spirit of God spoke to my heart. And I came to recognize that I was lost. That I didn't, I didn't, I was a decent kid. Some people would even say I was a good kid. I wasn't a very good student, but I was a good kid overall. I was in compliance for the most part. But I came to recognize that I was lost. And I remember the day when I knelt down in my bedroom, prayed a simple prayer. We, we, we sometimes call it the sinner's prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I remember the day when I got over myself and my own ability and put my soul in the hands of God by believing on Jesus. And I remember asking him to be my savior. And in that moment, I was justified by faith. No more self-reliance, no more I'm a pretty good person, no more I don't need God. But suddenly, I'm justified by faith, by believing, by trusting, and I called upon him to save me. And do you know what the beautiful promise of the word of God is? Romans 10 and verse number 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You need to be saved. You need to be justified this morning. God's made an adequate provision. If you reject the provision of Christ and believing upon him and his person and work, what he did for us, then you'll face consequences. And the thing you must do is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Father, thank you for such clarity in Scripture. The Scriptures clear up an awful lot of religion, an awful lot of the teachings of men. They humble us, Lord, because we cannot approach to you on our own, but we can when we come to you through Christ. Father, this morning, if anyone is here and they're not sure of where they stand with you, help them to understand that being saved, being justified happens in a moment of time, the very moment that they believe. And I pray, Father, that for those that do not know Christ, today would be the day they would come to trust him. For those of us who are Christians, help us, Lord, to have clarity explaining to people it's not a church, it's not a creed, it's not a religion, it's personal faith in what you have done, and that the only acceptable way is to believe. Father, speak to every heart we pray. Make us, make we who are, are Christians, make us better witnesses. But Lord, if there be some here that are not sure, they just don't know, help them to settle that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Stand with me, please.